Hi guys and welcome to a very rare, unscheduled and unplanned episode of the Redcoat History Podcast and YouTube channel. Today I wanted to draw attention to something that's happening in the news. Let me, let me go on the BBC website. So I'm reading this on Sunday the 15th of August 2021. Uh, reports of evacuations in Kabul. With reports of the Taliban closing in, the tension in Kabul is rising. A BBC producer there said he was suddenly evacuated from a government office a short time ago. Photographs on social media appear to show some residents gathering outside banks, foreign embassies and in visa processing offices. Another post with a timestamp of 9.24, that must be 8.24 UK time, says Ghani's government on the brink. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani's government seems to be on the brink of losing control of the country. With Kabul the only major city left standing, the president appears to face a stark choice between surrendering to, to the Taliban or a fight to hold the capital. So you're probably wondering why this is relevant to the Redcoat History podcast. Well, two reasons. One, as someone who's been an observer of the situation in Afghanistan for a number of years and has been to Afghanistan a number of times since the fall of the Taliban, I've been to Kabul on numerous occasions and also Helmand province on a number of times. I have a, a personal interest. But secondly, in terms of military history, I think some of the parallels are quite interesting. And unless something drastically changes, Kabul will soon fall to the Taliban. I may have to eat those words if something happens, but it, it appears very, very likely. Probably by the time you watch this, it's already happened. And so I thought it would be an interesting parallel to look at the first Anglo-Afghan war briefly and the retreat from Kabul that ended in disaster for the British army. So I'm winging this episode a little bit, so you may have to bear with me while I read from my notes. I'm not going to get deeply into the causes of the first Anglo-Afghan war, but let's just sum it up by saying that the British feared Russian dominance in the country, this was the era of the great game of course, and so decided to invade and place a puppet, Shah Suja, on the throne in Kabul in 1839. After being initially successful, the British sent a large proportion of their troops back to India and settled down to what they thought would be the quiet business of governing. Obviously, they didn't really know Afghanistan at that time, else maybe they would have kept some more soldiers there. As we all know, Afghanistan is a complicated country and not an easy one to control. Never has been, never will be. The British became too comfortable and lowered the bribes they were paying to the Afghan chiefs. They were giving them money, basically, to support Shah Suja and to keep the passes open for British convoys to come and go. They lowered that amount and it was seen as an insult to the tribal chiefs and to the tribal warriors. That then led to an uprising which began in late 1841, which culminated in the British agreeing eventually to leave Kabul. They had negotiated a safe passage, but as we shall see, that didn't happen. So I'm going to switch now to reading from this book, A Journal of the Disasters in Afghanistan, 1841 to 1842, by Lady Sale. Her full name was Florentia, or Florentia Sale, and she was the wife of General Sale, Sir Robert Henry Sale, who we all know was later killed in 1845 fighting the Sikhs. 
Lady Sale was a tough woman. And let's, let's start as Thursday the 6th of January 1842. This is right at the start of the retreat from Kabul. And I think throughout this you're going to see some parallels with the current situation and what the uh, pro-government Afghans must be going through right now. Let's, let's pick it up. Thursday the 6th of January. We marched from Kabul. The advanced guard consisted of the 44th Queen's, 4th Irregular Horse and Skinner's Horse, two six-pounder guns, sappers and miners mountain train and the late envoy's escort. The main body included the 5th and 37th Native Infantry, that would be uh, Indian soldiers, the latter in charge of treasure, Anderson's Horse, the Shah's 6th Regiment, two six-pounder guns. The rear guard was composed of the 54th Native Infantry, 5th Cavalry and two six-pounder guns. The force consisted of about 4,500 fighting men and 12,000 followers. So you'd think that was a pretty strong force and could, could hold its own on the retreat. The troops left cantonments both by the rear gate and the breach to the right of it, which had been made yesterday by throwing down part of the rampart to form a bridge over the ditch. All was confusion from before daylight. The day was clear and frosty, the snow nearly a foot deep on the ground, the thermometer considerably below freezing. Previous to leaving cantonments, as we must abandon most of our property, Stuart, that's her friend, was anxious to save a few of his most valuable books and to try the experiment of sending them to a friend in the city. Whilst he selected these, I found amongst the ones thrown aside Campbell's poems, which opened at Hohenlinden, and strange to say, one verse actually haunted me day and night. I'm quoting. Few, few shall part where our many meet. The snow shall be their winding sheet, and every turf beneath their feet shall be a soldier's sepulchre. I am far from being a believer in presentiments, but this verse is never absent from my thoughts. Heaven forbid that our fears should be realised. Well, her fears were about to be realised. Let's jump ahead a little bit more. Previous to their quitting them, the Afghans had entered and set fire to all the public and private buildings after plundering them of their contents. The whole of our valuable magazine was looted by the mob and they burned the gun carriages to procure the iron. Some fighting took place between the Afghans and our Sipahis. I think Sipahis, she basically means uh, native Indian troops. About 50 of the 54th were killed and wounded and Cornet Hardiman of the 5th Cavalry killed. A great deal of baggage and public property was abandoned in cantonments or lost on the road, amongst which were two horse artillery six-pounders, as before mentioned. The officers of the rear guard report that the road is strewn with baggage and that numbers of men, women and children are left on the roadside to perish. So this is before the retreats even began. The next day on the 7th she goes on. Numbers of unfortunates have dropped, benumbed with cold, to be massacred by the enemy. Yet so bigoted are our rulers, she means the generals in command, who had basically messed things up badly from the beginning, that we are still told that the Sirdars are faithful and that Mohammed Akbar Khan is our friend. He was one of the Afghan leaders. And the reason is they wish, wish us to delay is that they may send their troops to clear the passes for us. So the Afghans were trying to get the British to delay their retreat, claiming it was to clear the passes. That they will send them, there can be no doubt, for everything is occurring just as we were foretold to us before we set out. Between Begarami, I think that might be Bagram, modern-day Bagram, and Burkhak, 
A body of the enemy's horse charged down into the column immediately after the 5th and 37th had passed and succeeded in carrying off an immense quantity of baggage and a number of camels without experiencing the least resistance. So it'll be interesting to see if when, when slash if Kabul falls this time, we're going to see similar scenes with looting and attacks on those who are trying to escape. On the 8th of January, she writes, After very great exertions on the part of the commanding officers, portions of their corps were got together. The 44th, that's Her Majesty's 44th foot, headed by Major Thane, drove the enemy off to a short distance and took up position on a commanding height. The cavalry were also employed. Bullets kept whizzing by us as we sat on our horses for hours. The artillerymen were now fully primed by having had some brandy given to them from the 54th's mess stores, which were being distributed to anyone who would take them. They mounted their horses and with the best feeling in the world declared that they were ashamed at our inactivity and vowed they would charge the enemy. Captain Nicholl, their immediate commandant, came up, abused them as drunkards and talked of punishment. Not the way to quiet tipsy men. <laughs> Brilliant detail, isn't it? They turned to Stuart shortly after their own officer had left them, having showered curses and abuse on them, which had irritated them dreadfully. Stuart told them they were fine fellows and had ever proved themselves such during the siege, but that their lives were too valuable to be risked at such a moment. But if need were and their services were required, he would, he would himself go with them. This, in a certain degree, restrained their ardour. So in the middle of this, it's clear that the men were getting drunk and discipline was clearly falling by the wayside very, very quickly. A couple of days later, Mrs. Sale and some of the other women and children and, and, the, and some of their husbands were given over as hostages to the Afghans who claimed they didn't want to see these women and children dying because many already had. So she had now left the convoy and been taken as a, a hostage, a prisoner, a guest, however you want to say it. Um, but she, she was able to find first-person testament of what happened after she left. So I want to I pick up a little bit. She said here, I must divide the account. I shall go on with my own personal adventures and afterwards from the same date follow upon the fortunes of our unhappy army from the journals of friends who, thank God, have lived, lived through all their sufferings. So I'm going to carry on and pick up. On the 10th, she says that the rear guard composed of the 54th Regiment on arriving at the narrow pass called Tungi Taraki, or the Dark Pass, a turn in the road shut out from their sight of the enemy, who had followed close on their heels, but on whom they had received strict orders not to fire. Although the Gilzais, that's the tribesmen in that area, from the heights and ravines had kept up a sharp discharge, killing many Sipahis and camp followers, and cutting up all wounded and sick left behind. On arriving at the above-mentioned pass, the turn in the road allowed the Gilzais to close up, and a general attack was made on all sides. Hundreds of Afghans rushing down from the rocks and hills cut to pieces the now reduced regiment. Here Major Ewart, commanding the 54th, had both his arms broken by bullets from the Gisales, that's the, the weapons that the Afghans were using. Lieutenant Morrison, the adjutant, was wounded, and Lieutenant Weaver of the same corps slightly. Lieutenant Melville, on observing the Jemadar who carried the regiment's colour, wounded and dropping his charge, seized it and after vainly attempting to tear it off the staff to which it was too firmly attached, made his way on foot, his horse having been killed, with the colour in his hand. This made him a mark for the enemy, and, and here he had got out of the pass, being nearly or quite the last man of the column, or rather rabble, he received a spear wound in his back, which threw him on his face. 
Ere well able to rise, a severe sword cut in his head again laid him prostrate. But he contrived to crawl as far as the fast retreating column, when again the knife of an Afghan wounded him in the neck, and a spear in the chin he gave up all for lost. He was now surrounded by a dozen gilzeyes, and no man save the dead and dying near him. When the enemy, observing a box of treasure on the opposite side of the pass, left him for the purpose of rifling the money, he made his escape and rejoined the column. Amazing stories, aren't they? I mean, I can only, I can't even pretend to imagine what it must have been like. Bear in mind, this is middle of winter, deep snow, discipline is falling apart. You're, you're, you're going through these narrow passes with the enemy sharpshooters all around you, just coming in and taking what they want when they want to. And you're running out of ammunition. Let's carry on. She says, the small remnant of the army consisted of about 75 files of the 44th Regiment, 50 of the 5th Cavalry and one six-pounder gun. Observing a body of cavalry in their rear, they determined to bring their solitary gun into position and make a last effort for existence. Finding it was again Mohammed Akbar Khan, Captain Skinner, by direction of the general, went over under escort to him to remonstrate on the attack made on our troops after a treaty had been entered into for our protection. He replied he regretted it. He could not control the gill's eyes. This is the claim of um, Akbar Khan. With his small body of horse, only about 300 men. But that, as the remnant of our troops was merely a few Europeans, he would guarantee their safety and that of all the European officers to Jalalabad if the general would conduct them all disarmed while the Afghans were to have use of their weapons. So basically, the Afghan commander, who had been overseeing this slaughter, has now said to the British, if they want to continue in safety, they must hand over their arms. He said his motives for this were that, should they bring their arms with them, his own followers would be afraid of treachery. To this, the general would not assent. And so the journey continued. And on the 12th, I'm going to pick up the story. Near the close of the day, the enemy commenced a furious attack from all sides. The situation of our troops at this time was critical in the extreme. The loss they sustained in men and officers had been great during the day, and the survivors had only been able to obtain a scanty meal of camel's flesh. Even water was not procurable without the parties proceeding for it being exposed to a heavy fire. The men, under all this suffering, perishing with cold at their post, bravely repelled the enemy and would then have followed them from under the dilapidated walls had they been permitted to do so. During this conflict, Captain Sutra of the 44th, anxious to save the colours of his regiment, tore one of them from its staff and, folding it around his person, concealed it under the pochtine he wore. The other colour was in like manner appropriated by Lieutenant Cumberland, but finding that he could not close his peacoat over it, he reluctantly entrusted it to the care of Acting Quartermaster Sergeant of the 44th Regiment. So those of you who know the book Flashman by George MacDonald Frazier, the first in the series, may recognise this story. If you've not read it, I highly recommend it. Fantastic book. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. The Afghans, favoured by the darkness of the night, stole in amongst the followers that were in the column, whom they quietly dispatched and proceeded to plunder. These daring men, however, were nearly all cut up or bayoneted by the enraged British soldiery, who shortly after came upon an encampment of the enemy, in passing which they were saluted with a heavy fire, followed up by a sally upon the camp followers as usual. 
In this conflict, the acting quartermaster sergeant fell, and in the confusion caused by an overwhelming enemy pressing on the rear in the night attack, it was not surprising that it was found impossible to extricate the colour from the body of the fallen man, and its loss was unavoidable. The disorder of the troops was increased by a part of them. The few remaining horsemen galloped through and over the infantry in hopes of securing their own retreat to Jalalabad. So that shows you how badly command and control had broken down. Now the horsemen were trying to make their own escape. These men, maddened at being ridden over, the men, sorry, the infantry, she means, maddened at being ridden over, fired on them. And and it's said that some officers were fired at, but that rests on doubtful testimony, which probably means it's true. When the firing slackened and the clashing of knives and bayonets had in some measure ceased, the men moved on slowly, and on arriving at the top of the gorge were able to ascertain the fearful extent of the loss they had sustained in men and officers. On the 13th, from Sorkab, the remnant of the column moved towards Gandamak, but as day dawned, the enemy's numbers increased. Unfortunately, daylight soon exposed them to how very few fighting men the column actually contained. The force now consisted of 20 officers, of whom Major Griffiths was the senior, 50 men of Her Majesty's 44 foot, 6 of the horse artillery and 4 or 5 sipahis. Amongst the whole there were but 20 muskets. 300 camp followers still continued with them. So from the thousands at the beginning, we're now talking about 320 or so, maybe a few more survivors still marching. Being now assailed by an increased force, they were compelled to quit the road and take up a position on a hill adjoining. Some Afghan horsemen being observed at a short distance were beckoned to. On their approach, there was a cessation of firing. Terms were proposed by Captain Hay to allow the force to proceed without further hostilities to Jalalabad. I don't know how many times they wanted to try and negotiate with the Afghans. It it clearly wasn't working. These persons, not being sufficiently influential to negotiate, Major Griffiths proceeded with them to a neighbouring chief for that purpose, taking with him Mr Blewett, formerly a writer in Captain Johnson's office, who understood Persian, so he would act as the interpreter. During this time, many Afghans ascended the hill where our troops awaited the issue of the expected conference, and exchanges of friendly words passed between both parties. This lasted upwards of an hour. But hostilities were renewed by the Afghans, who snatched at the firearms of the men and officers. This they of course resisted and drove them off the hill. But the majority of the enemy who occupied the adjoining hills commanding our position commenced a galling fire upon us. Several times they attempted to dislodge our men from the hill and were repulsed. Until our ammunition being expended and our fighting men reduced to about 30, the enemy made a rush which in our weak state we were unable to cope with. They bore our men down, knife in hand, and slaughtered all the party, except Captain Souter and seven or eight men of the 44th and artillery. This officer thinks that this unusual act of forbearance towards him originated in the strange dress he wore. Remember, he had the colour wrapped around him. It was exposed to view, wrapped around his body, and and they must have assumed he was a valuable prize, some great bahador for whom a large ransom might be obtained. Eighteen officers and about fifty men were killed at the final struggle of Gandamak. Captain Souter and the few remaining men, seven or eight, that were taken alive from the field were, after a detention of a month in the adjoining villages, made over to Mohammed Akbar Khan and sent to the fort of Budiabad in the Lugman Valley, where they arrived on the 15th of February. Now, they weren't the only survivors of the convoy. There was a few other men who made it through and one made it all the way to Jalalabad. Let's pick up his story.
So I don't have a big collection of books on the first Anglo-Afghan -Af war, but I picked this one up, funnily enough, just the other day. It's called Signal Catastrophe by Patrick McCrory. And I'm going to pick up a little bit of the story here. He says, There were now only six left of the force. For the twelve mounted men who had ridden on ahead from Jugdaluk, half had fallen by the way by the time they reached Futabad, a mere 16 miles from their goal. So I think essentially what happened here is this small group had gone ahead presumably for some sort of reconnaissance purpose. I haven't read the whole book yet. I just wanted to get straight to this final passage. At Futehabad, the fugitives were met with the smiling friendship that, as only too often, masked a murderous treachery. The inhabitants urged them to rest while food was made ready for them, and Belu, in command of the little band, unwisely agreed. The Afghans used the delay to get their weapons and then rushed at the six officers, Bellew and Bird were hacked to bits while the other four scrambled to their horses and rode for their lives. But the horses were tiring fast. Armed men rode in pursuit and Collier, Hopkins and Harper were overtaken and killed within four miles of Jalalabad. So they were very close to safety because there were British troops at Jalalabad. And now, of all the Kabul army, there was only Surgeon Bryden, he was the one surviving man at this point, riding desperately onwards on a sorely wounded pony when 20 enemy horsemen barred his way with large stones in their hands to greet him. By the way, I just want to backtrack a little bit, because there's a great story I read that Surgeon Bryden's horse, his pony, was given to him by a, an Indian sergeant who said, look, I'm wounded, I'm not going to survive this journey, you can still make it. And a, in an amazing display, gave Bryden his horse, and that's why Bryden had a horse at this point and was able to get this far. Anyway, let me carry on. Twenty horsemen barred his way, with large stones in their hands to greet him. He kicked his pony into a gallop and broke through the cordon. A second body of horsemen loomed up in his path, and a second time he was able to burst clear, though a stone broke his sword blade, leaving a mere six inches in the hilt. Yet a third time, time enemy troopers crossed his path, men in scarlet tunics, whom for one joyous moment he mistook for a cavalry patrol of the Jalalabad garrison. He realised his error when one of them rode at him with a shout, his sabre swinging. Bryden parried with his broken sword, and the last six inches of the blade were knocked from the hilt. Unarmed and desperate, the surgeon flung the hilt at the other's face and stooped to gather the reins which had dropped from his hand. The assailant, thinking that he was drawing a pistol, wheeled his horse and galloped off. The Afghans, unpredictable as usual, lost interest, and Bryden suddenly found himself alone, free to ride slowly on to where Sale and the garrison of Jalalabad were waiting for him. The British, clearly defeated and embarrassed by everything that happened, again, parallels to the modern time here. They did return, they did defeat the Afghans, and they had their, their Pyrrhic victory. They, they could say they had won the war. But eventually, political pressure was too much, and after winning the war, they then withdrew once more. So it was this war that helped to lay that foundation of, of Afghanistan being the, what is it, the cemetery of empires, the grave of empires. And clearly, once again, we're seeing that that's true. Even with modern logistics, modern armies with modern weaponry, the Afghans are very hard to beat. So I hope you found that impromptu episode of the Redcoat History Podcast interesting. I thought it was very important to do it. It seemed very relevant. What it has meant, though, to the schedule of the show is I've had to push back the second instalment of my interview with Amapol Sidhu Singh about the first anglo sequel. I've pushed that back. I'm going to re release that now next week. So do, do make sure you tune in for that one. 
Another small bit of news, guys, before I go, is I've set up a, a donations page. It's a little bit like Patreon, but there's no sort of monthly membership. It can be a one-off donation. It's uh, co-fi.com slash redcoathistory. That's ko-fi.com. I think it stands for coffee, as in buy me a coffee. Um, if anyone's interested in donating to help keep the show going, then that would be fantastic. I've already had a few donations, which I'm very humbled by, because I wasn't expecting any, to be quite honest. So if you feel like helping out the show by donating a small amount of money that will help with future visits to battlefields and also to the web hosting and the purchase of books and research material, then please go to code-fi.com, coffee.com slash redcoathistory. That would be fantastic. All right, guys, take care and I'll speak to you soon.